Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. In this episode, I will veer a little from the usual format of Israeli current events enriched with context. Instead, I'll interview two Israeli rabbis for the high holidays, that is, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. After that, we will welcome in the year 5,782 and speak of the challenges that await Israel and Israeli society. To start, I just want to say that the first time I ever heard the term high holidays was when we moved from Israel to America. I was 11 years of age. I had no clue what it meant. In Israel, I never heard those two words. Only later did I understand that the Hebrew equivalent to the high holidays is Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, which are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. My first guest is Rabbi Maya Leibovich. Rabbi Maya is the first native-born female rabbi in Israel. She was ordained in 1993 at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Jerusalem. Welcome, Rabbi Maya. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. So I want to ask you about Rosh Hashanah, and I want to be very honest to begin with. If I ask my friends or family, what is Rosh Hashanah? They'll say, oh, it's our new Jewish year. Rabbi Maya, is that it, or is there more to Rosh Hashanah? Uh, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, is the head of the year, if translated literally. And yes, it's uh, it's a time to look back at the year that passed. It's a time to look forward into the future. It's a birthday of creation. Um, there's much more to just saying it's the beginning of the year. It's the whole idea of reflection. Uh, On Rosh Hashanah, we read in synagogue about the women whose barrenness was broken through. So in many ways, it's it's getting back into the womb, the womb of the world, and looking at it and being reborn. It's a beautiful idea of a new beginning, a chance to start anew. There's something that always bothered me about Rosh Hashanah. We celebrate Rosh Hashanah, we get, family gets together, we have a feast, we celebrate. And yet, Rosh Hashanah marks the beginning of a timer, like a 10-day timer, in which you get judged for the book of life or condemned to death. So should we be like panicking? Should we have anxiety? We should be reflecting. But I have to say, you know, it, it's an interesting question because there is no perfect joy in Judaism nor uh, full sorrow. They are always combined. But nobody wants you to panic. Um, the idea is for you to look back, to reflect upon what you did from last year to this year. It enables us not just to reflect, but to really start anew, to regret things we've done, to mend our ways. That is the whole idea. In Judaism, the basic idea is of mending the world. So these days teaches mutual responsibility because it's not just you or I, it's all of us together. We stand on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as a community, not as an individual. As an individual, you have to reflect upon your deeds and upon your life on a regular basis, which most of us don't do. So Rosh Hashanah is an awakening call to do it. But that once a year, we do it as a community. And we look back and we try to mend our ways in order for the future to be a better future for the world, for our children, for our grandchildren. Most of my friends in Israel and family, present company, myself included, do not go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. But then again, at the end of the holiday, many of us get together and walk up to the synagogue. And from the outside, usually hear the blowing of the shofar. It's interesting because I see neighbors I haven't seen in a year. 
What do you make of this phenomena? The not coming into synagogue makes me sad because I would like every Jew, especially in Eretz Israel, in Israel, to feel connected to our own tradition and heritage. And some of the most beautiful liturgical pieces that we have belong to these days because these are the days of all. Some of the music and the wording is absolutely inspiring and, and beautiful and, and should be listened to. But I have to remind myself and you that Beit Knesset in uh, Hebrew means a place of convening, basically coming to be together. By coming to the outside, to the yard of the synagogue, you're performing the second mitzvah by convening with other Jews. And it's wonderful that you have a chance to meet with them and uh, and remind yourself of your relationship, of, you know, of your mutual responsibility. These are the basic ideas. Well, thank you. I have one last question for you. Many of our holidays have yes. direct link to the land of Israel. On three of them, Sukkot, Shavuot, and Pesach, we are commanded to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Is there any connection between Rosh Hashanah and the land of Israel? Uh, not necessarily. Unlike the three regaling, the three pilgrimage holidays, which are rooted in the land of Israel, Rosh Hashanah is universal. It's directed to the world, not necessarily to Israel. We celebrate the rebirth of the world, the creation of the world. We recognize that God is not only ours, but is connected to all nations of the world. Of course, we did apples in honey coming to our land. But the major idea of this holiday is universal. It's not just us, it's the world. Wow, that was enlightening. Rabbi Maya, thank you so much for interviewing. Um, I want to wish you and your family in Klal Israel, all of Israel, Shana Tova, health and happiness. Adding my blessings, amen to all. Shana Tova. My second guest is Rabbi Robert Kahn. Rabbi Khan, since the age of 16, has been working in informal Jewish education. He was a camp director, a congregational rabbi in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He taught Young Judea year course in Israel, as well as guided tours in Israel. He also has a year-round relationship with a Golda Academy in West Orange, New Jersey. Rabbi Khan, welcome. Hey, Tides. Good to hear your voice. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. So, in my field of business and passion, which is giving tours of Israel, I often discuss Jewish holidays. Many of the non-Jewish tourists, as well as some of the Jewish tourists, are convinced that Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish year. Is that so? Yeah, I think actually you could say it's the holiest day of the year for a lot of reasons. Number one, you think about the day of the year, it's the 10th day of Tishrei, but it's not a one-day holiday in a way. This whole season of self-reflection, taking an account of ourselves, asking for forgiveness, seeking atonement. That all actually began 40 days earlier with the beginning of the holiday of Elul. We blow the shofar every morning to remind ourselves that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming up. And then after Rosh Hashanah, those 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So on the one hand, I would say there's reason to say it's the holiest and most important day of the Jewish calendar because we're anticipating it and working towards it for 40 days. I don't think there's really anything else like that. Then if you think about the customs associated with the holiday, I mean, there's only two days of the year where we have a full fast, no food and water. For you know, 24, 25 hours of Yom Kippur, we only have it also on Tisha B'Av. We also even change our clothing. Many people wear a kitzel, a white robe. You're forbidden from wearing leather. So your shoes are different than normal. And these different minhagim 
I think, do stress the fact that this is a day unlike any others. And when it comes to the holiest, which in Hebrew we would say kadosh or kedushah, that's a way of making something special, making something different. So I think the experience of Yom Kippur is unlike any other day of the year. You know, a lot of Israelis greet each other before and after Yom Kippur, mostly before, with Khatima Tova, have a good signature. What's that about? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people probably say that to each other without knowing what it means exactly. It's referring to an image or a metaphor that is very common with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We speak about it in the services themselves, in the prayers themselves. And kind of the metaphor, the image is God is in heaven with an open book. And this is the book of life. And all of humanity is going to either be written into the book of life for the following year, or they're not. Now, I said, I think this is a metaphor, an image. I don't believe this is literally so, but I think it's useful because it forces us into a kind of thinking, which is dramatic and for scary for some people. But I think we're supposed to imagine what if we were not to make it in the book of life? What if we were to die? or a loved one of ours was to die. It kind of gets us to think, what should I be doing with my life? I need to live and I need to analyze what are my priorities? How am I living my life? How are my relationships with other people, with myself, with God? And so that kind of scary image of either making into the book of life or God forbid dying, I think kind of um, inspires or motivates us to do the necessary spiritual work and self-examination of Yom Kippur. For Israelis specifically, Yom Kippur is, as you said, about death and war. And the reason was because in 1973, we experienced the Yom Kippur War, and it was quite devastating. Before Yom Kippur on television in Israel, you see a lot of documentaries about soldiers that had fought on Yom Kippur, had given up their lives. And the mood is very somber. What's that like for you, having lived in the States and then moving to Israel? Yeah, I had never really associated the two. In uh, the United States, though we might think of the fact that there was a Yom Kippur War, somehow the two events are kept separate, the religious holiday and the memory of the war. And really, it struck me when I made Aliyah because there's a certain lead-up here to every holiday, right? There's people selling the materials you need to build your sukkah in the days leading up to Sukkot. There's a rush on dairy products before Shavuot when we're supposed to eat dairy. You can go through this one by one, Purim and Purim costumes. And I had never felt with Yom Kippur in the States, I'd never really realized the connection. And here, as I was reading the newspaper several days leading up to Yom Kippur, I realized not only is this country focused on the holy day of Yom Kippur, but this country is also focused on the memory of those losses of the Yom Kippur War. And at first, to me, the two seemed separate until I really gave it some more thought. And then, like you just kind of implied, to think about the soldiers who died, to think about their families in mourning. In some ways, it actually is kind of a helpful for us to get deeper into the meaning of Yom Kippur. But you're right, I I really just first realized that here in in Israel. Another interesting Israeli phenomena, although it happens elsewhere, but mostly in Israel, is that the Israeli population is split about 50-50 between Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. And these two groups have different traditions for some of the holidays, like on Passover, what you eat or you don't eat. Are there also differences of ritual, prayer, or other on Yom Kippur between the two communities, the two ethnicities? 
It's really interesting. We're speaking basically on Erev close to Rosh Hashanah about the different kind of like Seder of Simanim and the foods that Sephardim eat, that Ashkenazim largely don't do those customs, although it's starting to, both communities starting to borrow more from each other. I would actually say with Yom Kippur, listen, you always have your differences. If you pick up the prayer book for the Ashkenazim called the Machzor for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you will definitely find differences in there than the Machzor of the Sephardi. But there are reasonably minor differences. If anything, I would say the holiday of Yom Kippur is a time where the Jewish community of Israel largely comes together. You can see this in many ways. The beaches on Rosh Hashanah could be extremely crowded because that's what secular Jews want to do on Rosh Hashanah, where the beaches on Yom Kippur are going to be empty. And the streets, by the way, are empty of cars. I never had seen anything like this until we made Aliyah. And by the way, I think many of those secular quote-unquote Jews are fasting on Yom Kippur and even stepping into synagogues, maybe briefly for the beginning or for the end. But I do think that here, if you ask the question, are there big differences between the Sephardi and Ashkenazi community? I would actually say no. I think in some ways, the Kalal Yisrael, the unity of the Jewish community of Israel, is really felt quite a bit on Yom Kippur. You lived with your family in the U.S., as you mentioned. You were the senior rabbi leading a large congregation in Minneapolis. For the last 15 years or so, you guys have lived in Israel. Tell us about the difference between Yom Kippur in the States and the way that it is in Israel. Similarly, every Jew in America knows that this is an important day on the Jewish calendar. No matter how religious or non-religious they are, kids will actually take a day off of school to go with their family to the synagogue. People will take a day off of work to go into the synagogue. So in some ways, Yom Kippur is an example, as opposed to other holidays, where even American Jewry is fully invested. But there's like a bigger question here, and something that I feel maybe on a more cosmic, day-to-day level. In America, I always felt like to live a Jewish life, a serious Jewish life, an engaged Jewish life, meant to kind of swim against the current of the general population. Shabbat was a different day of the week. To eat kosher was different than the general community was doing. People noticed the kippah so that in elevators they would say, Shalom, you know, to you just because I was wearing a kippah. When we moved to Israel, we realized, wow, we're swimming with the stream. The calendar is our calendar. There's something that you just feel a sense of support and comfort level. And so the question you asked, Yom Kippur, Israel, America, I would just say the Jewish, living the Jewish calendar in Israel is just a whole different experience than living the Jewish calendar, especially in a community like Minneapolis, which has a strong Jewish community, but is largely living within a much more non-Jewish community. Speaking of calendar, this year, 5782, marks the year of Shemitah. Can you just tell us a few words about that? Sure. Shemitah is discussed in the Bible, mostly focused on agriculture. And one might say it's idealistic, but the idea was that just as we human beings are supposed to rest regularly, which we do weekly with the celebration of Shabbat to rest and rejuvenate, so also the land deserves a chance to rest and rejuvenate. And I'll just tell you, Itai, my wife, Kami, has gotten really into gardening during this corona period. We have a large merpesset, large balcony, and she has turned the whole thing into a huge garden. When We're eating much of the food in the kitchen is now coming out of the garden. And though she's only gotten into this in the last year and a half, two years, now she's largely going to have to take a break. She's found a few ways to work around it, but she's going to have to give the merpesset garden a year off during this coming year in Shemitah. 
Rabbi Khan, thank you so much for educating us. I just want to wish you, your family, and Klal Israel, all of Israel, a healthy and happy new year. Shana Tova. To you too, Itai, your family. Thank you very much for having me on. Let's just hope for a better world. There's a lot of challenges, but lat lat, as we say, little by little, hopefully this will be a good year for all of us. So welcome, 5782. What is awaiting us here in Israel? What are the challenges to Israel and Israeli society? So, for instance, security. In previous episodes, we discussed Israel's security concerns, like Iran and its attempt to build a nuclear bomb, as well as to create a siege around Israel. We also discussed the Iranian proxy, Hezbollah, and the threat it poses to Israel. We discussed the Hamas and Palestinian Authority, and more. In 5782, Israel will still face challenges from all of these groups. On the other hand, pragmatic Arab countries like the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, Oman, and to an extent Saudi Arabia, have either reached a peace deal or upgraded the relationship with economic ties and embassies with us. Will 5782 usher in other Arab countries opening up to Israel? Basically recognizing Israel as a part of the Middle East and here to stay, we will continue to monitor security and peace in the coming year. What about the economy? Israel is ranked as one of the top economies of the world. According to Forbes, Israel's economy is 19th in the world in its gross domestic product per capita. In that respect, Israel's wealth is higher than some of the most advanced and most developed economies, such as the UK, Japan, France, South Korea, Italy, or Spain. Having said that, Israel has the least amount of people working of any other Western democracy. We have two large populations, the Haredi, ultra-Orthodox men, and Muslim Arab women that don't work. 50% of all Haredi men study at yeshiva, and about the same percentage of Arab Muslim women do not work due to conservative modesty reasons. According to the Bank of Israel, this is not economically sustainable in the years ahead. Health. Here too, Israel stands out. In Israel, health care is considered a fundamental right and all Israeli citizens are entitled to basic health care. How do we stand out? Israel spends about 8.4% of its gross national product on health, compared to 16% by the United States. And yet, we have more access to health care and more efficiency. We cover everyone at half the cost. We have a higher life expectancy than the United States. So where are the challenges? We have severe shortage of doctors and nurses. It is currently starting to take a toll. For example, Israel's 5.1 medical graduates per 100,000 people. In the rest of the modern economies, it's more than double. Specifically, 11.5 per 100,000 people of most first world economies. Nursing graduates in Israel, 22 per 100,000 people. In the rest of the modern economies, again, more than double. It stands at 47. We don't have enough hospital rooms and beds. It is not uncommon that patients lay in beds in hospital corridors. How about minorities in Israel, like the Arab Israelis? Although Arabs in Israel are about 21% of the population, they make up about 35% of all doctors and 60% of all pharmacists. In many ways, the Jewish and Arab populations have grown closer, but in other ways, very much apart. Many of the Arab minorities feel like second-class citizens. They are Muslims and Christians living in a Jewish state with a Jewish flag resembling a talit, a prayer shawl, with a Star David smack in the middle. The national anthem, Hatikva, recites, My Jewish soul, nefesh Yehudi homia. You can't expect these Arab minorities to identify with this flag and this anthem. Now, these are only symbols, but in the Middle East, symbols are extremely powerful. What will be the relationship between Jews and Arab Israelis? In May, only four months ago, many of the Arab youth took to the streets in clear support of Hamas in Gaza during the Guardian of the Walls operation. Violence toward the Jewish community at that time was widespread. But the majority of violence is actually Arab on Arab. 
It is disastrous and frankly, it's appalling, especially to those that are supposed to fight crime, namely the Israeli police. Thus far in 2021, 82% of all murders in Israel, 82% are Arab on Arab, mostly mafia type crime, but also honor killing and domestic violence. In 5782, the year to come, dealing with Arab violence will be top priority for the government. How about the environment? Israel leads the world by far in water recycling. 90% of Israel's wastewater is now reused, mostly of course for agricultural irrigation. No wonder the vegetables are so good. The closest country that comes to us is Spain with about 20%. The US only recycles 10% of their wastewater. However, due to Israel's semi-desert climate, highly population density, and geostrategic sensitivity, Israel has its work cut out for it. And we are behind. In fact, we are among the last four member countries of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's called the OECD, to enact legislation regarding climate change. All these topics and more, like redemption of prisoners held by our enemies, Israel in the Middle East Arab media, high tech as a leading economy engine, its pluses and minuses, cyber challenges, the role of the Supreme Court, and of course, the current events. All this will be discussed in the coming year, 5,782. Most of these topics, we will be interviewing top-notch experts. So, I wish you a wonderful new year. May it bring health, peace, and happiness. Shana Tova to all.